Hello and welcome to Oberta Dicta, a podcast by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland. Each episode, we interview one of Ireland's leading legal professionals on their areas of interest and expertise and how these are informing our current headlines. We also deliver a summary of Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's latest updates across its online services and blog. Your hosts for this podcast are myself, Rachel Sherlock, the Marketing Executive for Bloomsbury Professional Ireland and General Literature Enthusiast. And me, Owen Malloy, a graduate of NUI Galway School of Law and FE1 survivor. I now work as Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's Content Editor, with a particular focus on our online services. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Welcome to the 10th episode of Oberter Dicta. In this episode, myself and Owen are delighted to be interviewing writer and barrister Michael O'Doherty. Michael's recently published title, Internet Law, is a truly comprehensive look at how the internet and the law interact across many different practice areas. It is available to purchase now on our website, www.bloomsburyprofessional.com. For this podcast, we spoke to Michael about the problem of hate speech, a topic he covers in depth in his book. We hope you enjoy the interview. Our guest today is barrister and writer Michael O'Doherty, who also happens to be the author of one of our most recently published titles, Internet Law. A highly ambitious and comprehensive work, this book examines how the internet and law interact with one another through the lens of various practice areas, covering to name but a few data protection, tort, contract, and of course, our topic of discussion today, the very modern problem of online hate speech. Michael, you're very welcome to the podcast. Um, hello, hello, Rachel. So how have you been since you had been the manuscript? I'd imagine it feels as though a, a massive weight has been lifted off your shoulders. Um, it has. Um, the book took just under three years um, to research and to write. And uh, kind of the year before that, I'd been deviling in my first year full time. And three years before that, I had been studying King's Inns. So it has been relentless for six or seven years. And um, having finished the book just at the end of the end of February and the book coming out towards the end of March, um, it's actually been nice the last few months because of uh, it seems strange to kind of consider the COVID-19 pandemic to be a blessing. But in a way, it has given me a chance to kind of sit back and smell the roses for the first time in seven years, which is nice. Yeah, that's really nice. Uh, although I imagine the, the launch plans have been put on hold for now. Yeah, they they have. Um, I had planned to launch the book at the end of March, straight after it was published, and actually had a date um, in mind, but that had to be cancelled. It was it was literally week one or week two of the pandemic, so that's gone. But it will come back, and I'm hoping I'm certainly hoping to have it um, before the end of the year. And I I don't think kind of the book is out of date in any way. Nothing has been superseded in terms of what's happened in the meantime. Um, And it is as relevant as it was back in March. In fact, possibly even more relevant in in a lot of people's minds. Um, The whole kind of concept of of the internet and the online world has very much come to the forefront, I think, of people's minds in recent months. So any time is a good time, really, this year. That's really brilliant. I'm sure that everyone who picks up the book will find something of use in it because as we mentioned at the start it covers so many different practice areas through the lens of you know how the law interacts with technology and the internet yeah absolutely and i think there are so many topics that feel so timely at the moment and and even more pressing even than when it was first published so uh, i think in particular the internet is both a growing space and also a sort of growingly contentious space 
Um, and as you outline in chapter eight of your book, the internet is ideally suited to the dissemination of all kinds of speech. And while a lot of this can be used for positive purposes, some of it is inarguably harmful in nature. But maybe I thought it'd be interesting to ask the question, is there any line that has to be crossed before harmful speech becomes hateful? And is there a clear definition between those two things? Well, we're talking today about hate speech. And it's one of those kind of funny areas that people use the expression regularly. And they use it in a manner that suggests they know exactly what they mean. And I think everybody has an idea of what hate speech entails. But if you actually ask people to define hate speech, hardly anybody can do so. It's an extremely difficult thing. And it's not helped by the fact that looking for definitions is is problematic as well. I think there's a kind of general agreement that hate speech is a, a form of communication which either espouses hatred towards a particular group or a particular person because of their ethnic background, their race, their religion, their sexual orientation. And it either simply declares a hatred for them or in more extreme cases, um, it incites other people to either hate that group per se or possibly even in the most extreme form to promote violence against them. So it's a very extreme form of speech. There's a lot, as you say, Rachel, there's a lot of kind of harmful um, material generally online, which I think appears for kind of two basic reasons why it's on the internet uh, more so than anywhere else. First of all, there is the instant availability of the internet to just about everybody. And secondly, most importantly, there's the um, availability of anonymity. People can hide their identities on the internet. And this empowers people to say things that they wouldn't normally say either face-to-face or if they had to reveal their own identity. So those two things have provoked problematic content generally. But most recently, it has provoked hate speech. And just on the idea of uh, anonymity there, Michael, that you touched upon, you mentioned in your book this idea of a Norwich Pharmacal Order. Can you explain that for our listeners who mightn't be familiar with what that does in practice when it's ordered? Yeah, in the classic situation, somebody would be have something defamatory said about them, let's say on Twitter. OK, just for example, somebody posts a defamatory post on Twitter and there is a bizarre pseudonym in the account. So the, the, the person's name and there is a photograph of, of a cartoon or something else. So there's no way from looking at the Twitter feed of knowing who owns that account. So. You obviously have two options. You can either sue Twitter, good luck with that, or more probably you're going to sue the author for either harassing you or defaming you or something along those lines. So the first thing you need to do is you need to know who that person is, who is their identity. The immediate suggestion is, well, you you just contact Twitter and you ask them to reveal the identity because they will obviously have an IP address for that person. The problem with that is that there are contractual issues, there are privacy issues, and there are data protection issues about social media platforms revealing the identity of their members. So they will invariably say, no, we won't do so without a court order. So you have to go to court to compel the social media platform to reveal the identity of this person so that you can pursue that person directly through the courts. And the mechanism by which you do so is called a Norwich Pharmacal Order. That is what you are looking for. And it is named after an English, old English case, not that old, um, involving Norwich Pharmacal, whereby if somebody is caught up 
in a wrongdoing, and they have information which is useful to you to identify the author of the wrongdoing, you can get an order against that intermediary compelling them to reveal the identity. And that is what it is. So you make an application to the High Court for a large pharmacal order to reveal the identity of the person. That's really quite useful. Um, but I suppose bringing it back to online hate speech, in many instances, a lot of the harmful speech and hateful speech is coming from accounts that mightn't actually be anonymous. So I suppose, how prevalent is this problem? Uh, did you come across a lot of it in your research? I think hate speech is is kind of, has come to the forefront very recently for, and funny enough, just in the in the last few weeks, I think for a variety of reasons. First of all, it's it's always been there. I think, as I said, the anonymity and privacy um, that is provided for by social media platforms in particularly allows the fostering of hate speech. I, I read an article in the Guardian newspaper, I think a week or so ago, where they revealed that Facebook alone hosts over 100 private groups of far-right ideology, you know, where which are hidden to anybody except it allows particular members to join. And within those groups, they all share extreme right-wing um, ideology. And that's 100 just within Facebook, just of that one particular creed. Um, I, I think kind of the recent prevalence is, um, on the one hand, you have the Black Lives Matter movement has, I think, focused a lot of minds on racism. And while it's always been an issue, as I said, that the, the Black Lives Matter movement has, has very much made it uh, a, a very burning, relevant topic right now. Uh, you then had the issue of um, Donald Trump a few weeks ago and, tw- and Twitter labeling one of his tweets, whereby he retweeted a, a video which turned out to have been falsely manipulated to give a kind of wrongful impression that uh, there was racism at play. And Donald Trump retweeted this. And Twitter marked it, warning that, you know, that the accuracy of this video was very questionable, um, to put it mildly. And there has also been another online campaign called Stop Hate for Profit, which has been a kind of general online campaign aimed at companies, encouraging them to take a stand against social media platforms who are perceived to profit from hate speech without kind of ostensibly promoting it, the fact that they don't do any or are perceived not to do anything about it while making billions of dollars in advertising revenue. Um, There has been a campaign to try and get companies to withdraw their advertising revenue to in order to encourage the platform to do something about the hate speech that is on their platform. And, And that has come to light particularly in recent weeks because really for the first time since the middle of June, Um, There has actually been action taken by some of the largest advertisers online on on Facebook and Twitter, and they have very publicly declared the fact that they're pausing, in some cases, their spend on social media until such time as Facebook in particular deals with hate speech. And these are, I mean, these are huge companies. If you look at them, companies like Verizon, which I think is the largest um, telecommunications company in America. Honda, Unilever, Coca-Cola, Diageo, Adidas, Starbucks. All of these people have either said they're postponing their advertising for a month or they're postponing it indefinitely until something gets done. And, um, you know, the obviously the, the idea seems to be hit these people where it hurts most 
which is in their pocket. And already we have seen Facebook have reacted to this in a relatively small way, but they are starting to react to this. Yes, I was going to ask, I guess then, if there is a kind of call to to take a stand against hate speech, have we seen the platforms kind of rising to the challenge? Like, what have we seen them doing in, in response to this? The position of the platforms uh, has, has always been a a complex one. On the one hand, they have always said as a bottom line that they are not publishers. They are not like a newspaper or a television show um, or a radio station in terms of if somebody comes on and spouts hate speech on their program, that program itself can be liable for it. They have always said that they are simply the facilitators. They allow other people to publish their material and they do not publish it. So on the one hand, there is an ideological stance that they are not the publishers and that they are all in favor of free speech. And on the other hand, there is also the reality that they have billions of users every month and they just the technical difficulty of trying to monitor all this speech um, can be overwhelming. So it's not it's not really a question of can they stop hate speech going online. I think the issue is when they have been notified about this type of material, how quickly they act to remove it and whether they act at all. And I think that is the particular issue. Twitter, it seems, have, as I said, even if it was a small thing, um, that labeling of Donald Trump's tweet is a start. Um, Facebook's reaction to that was was to say, look, we, we're not going to do that. You know, we believe in free discourse, we believe in free speech, and we are not publishers. Um, and unless it is, unless it comes under particular specified categories where they do automatically delete it, which would be things like terrorism or child pornography, or that kind of material. Other than that, they say they will not be arbiters of what is hate speech and what is simply an unpopular opinion. And they said that they can't decide on those two things. I suppose, is there a worry for the platforms that once they get into the business of you know, taking an editorial stand on what constitutes harmful speech, what constitutes hateful speech, and what constitutes permissible speech, is there a worry that they will be more likely to be seen as publishers of the material if they take a stand on what constitutes hate speech? Well, there is a difficulty, and, and, and this kind of engages with the legislation also, as it currently stands, in terms of the kind of general EU legislation, in terms of the protection of liability of, of, of intermediaries um, and the defences they can use, that there is a tension between, on the one hand, if they don't monitor the material, they can then say we're not on notice of it. And they can rely on the fact that until such time as they are put on notice, they can't be held responsible. And on the other hand, should they be monitoring to a certain degree this material in the first place um, in order to stop it going through? The um, legislation that they rely on, the e-commerce directive, is 19 years old. It was published in 2001 by the EU. And it is due imminently for an update. And the EU have been talking about a Digital Services Act, which they plan to have a draft of by the end of this year. Now, how the COVID-19 situation will impact on that, we don't know. But the plan was to overhaul the e-commerce directive and possibly to make it clearer what degree of monitoring uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter were allowed to do without them taking on the mantle 
of being a publisher because that isn't clear as it currently stands. And as you say, Owen, that is part of part of the problem. And I suppose, is there any specific Irish legislation either currently on the books or on the way? Well, like a lot of legislation that deals with online material um, in this jurisdiction, the Act, um, the Incitement to Hatred Act is quite an old one. Uh, 1989, so it's 21 years old, and this is our kind of main, really our only piece of legislation that deals with hate speech head on. And it predates the internet completely. 1989 is really before the birth of the internet as we know it to any degree. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be used, and it has been used, incidentally, because it's phrased in fairly broad terms as to what constitutes hate speech. And if I can quote section two of the Act, it kind of it, it, it tries to give a definition both of hate speech um, and also uh, kind of how it becomes an offence under the Act. Um, and section two says that it's an offence for a person to publish or distribute written material or to use words, behave or display written material. Um, that where the written material words, behavior or visual images or sounds are threatening, abusive or insulting and are intended or having regard to all the circumstances are likely to stir up hatred. Now, hatred is defined separately as hatred against a group of persons in the state or elsewhere on account of their race, color, nationality, religion, ethnic or national origins, membership of the traveling community or sexual orientation. So hatred very much echoes um, the definition of discrimination under the Equal Status Act. So it is those particular categories. Now, the difficulty, as I see it with that act, is that there is a direct link between what the person says and the uh, result, the impact that it has. It does not seem to be enough under the act to simply say something that could be considered to be discriminatory or hateful towards these groups. It also has to incite or be likely to incite hatred amongst other peoples. And it is this causation, I think, is very, very problematic in terms of that act. Because if you look at a lot of speech online, it's it, it might not ostensibly be hate speech in that it doesn't explicitly incite hatred or violence towards people. To give you an example for something something I saw a couple of months ago on Twitter, I saw somebody posted a photograph of a primary school in the Republic of Ireland uh, taken this year and half the children were black. And there was a caption under it to be along the lines of, this is the reality of Ireland. This is what we're facing in the future. Now, clearly, the implication was the fact that Irish, in inverted commas, the race was being diluted by foreigners. This was clearly the implication. But the language used was not hateful, or not violent, or didn't seem to be inciting anything. So a comment like that would not seem to fall under the act. And I think that's that's part of the difficulty with it. And I suppose as a result of that causation problem that you mentioned, there, there haven't been many cases uh, under this legislation. Am I right to say that? There have been. There have been a handful. And there was um, the, the only case which, which I mentioned in the book, um, which I could find to do with online, where the, where the act was used for online behaviour, occurred in 2011 
And it was a case that was heard in Killarney District Court where a man had created a Facebook group. He had had an argument with a group of travellers in a pub in which he worked. And he had gone home um, annoyed with these particular travellers and had set up a Facebook group which used appalling language towards travellers. Um, and it was an open group, so anybody could join this group and anybody could see this group. And it, it, it was very, very vile the way it was described. Um, and the man was prosecuted under Section 2 of the Act. And a problem that I have with this particular case is that it found the man not guilty um, under the Act, while it felt that the um, language used was appalling. It was not proven that it had caused hatred against the traveling community. And the problem with that is that it kind of, it seemed to ignore the fact that the Act suggests that the likelihood that hatred um, is incited will, will, is sufficient under the Act. Killarney District Court seemed to, held that, seemed to hold that likelihood was not sufficient and that it actually had to be established that hatred had been incited. So that is a nine-year-old case. And as I said, it's a kind of slightly difficult one. Other jurisdictions have been, I have to say, much tougher um, than this one in terms of hate speech. There was, a, there was a case at the exact same time as that case was taking place in Killarney um, in Scotland where a man had um, written very racist remarks about the then Celtic football manager, Neil Lennon, um, and had made general comments about his religion and also about Catholics in general. And he was given an eight-month suspended sentence on the basis of that. Um, the UK kind of particularly seemed to kind of have dealt with it more strongly. Then again, there's a dearth of cases in this jurisdiction, so it's hard to make kind of general comments about it. But I think the government acknowledged the fact that there is difficulty. The Department of Justice and Equality have set up um, a consultation with the public in order to review um, legislation revolve, uh, around hatred with, with a view to obviously reviewing the Act or bringing in fresh legislation to deal with it. And I guess then taking a slightly broader view, is there any kind of EU initiatives planned or perhaps other supernatural bodies committed to tackling this problem? Yeah, um, I mean, in the EU, it's it's interesting that since 2016, there has been a kind of unofficial agreement between social media platforms um, and the EU in terms of hate speech. Um, it, this was a code of practice, which which companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter have, have all signed up to, which allowed for the removal of um, hate speech as expeditiously as possible, sometimes within 24 hours, certainly within a few days. And they have all signed up to that. So that has been in existence um, for some time. Now, as I, as I mentioned earlier, this Digital Services Act, um, which is in the pipeline, I think kind of plans to deal head on with the manner in which social media platforms deal with hate speech and other forms of kind of harmful online content and will possibly be more specific in terms of laying down timescales under which they are obliged to act, will possibly be more specific about these notice and takedown procedures that all social media platforms have, but are very much regulated by themselves. I mean, everybody has their own policies. And, and 
we've all seen when we deal with Facebook or Twitter um, and they talk about their violating their policies. All these policies are self-authored. They, they decide for themselves what they consider to be hate speech, what they should take down and what they shouldn't take down, and they decide how quickly they should or they shouldn't do it. And I think the EU are certainly looking to regulate this um, with the new Digital Services Act. That's really, really, really interesting stuff, Michael. I think it speaks to the the volume and the quality of your book, that this is just one aspect of one chapter of your book, Internet Law. Um, so really, really great stuff there. And I suppose we would just like to round off. We, we have this standing question that we asked to any of our authors who come on to the podcast. You know, what kind of advice would you give to students, you know, listening to this podcast, thinking, oh, I'd like to get to that stage of my career one day? And what kind of advice would you give to maybe a new graduate or a, or a student? Um, don't rush would be the first bit of advice that I would give. A lot of people are think that this is a race to the top. Um, I didn't open a law book till I was 46. Um, so I would say that you have plenty of time um, in order to do it. Obviously, this is very much dependent on your means, your own personal circumstances and things like that. But if you can possibly slow down after leaving college and take a year out before taking a job, my God, I would I would advise everybody, absolutely everybody to do that because you will get caught up in work before you know it and you'll never find the time again. I think um, my old lecturer, Tom O'Malley, used to say that, you know, Qualifying as a barrister or solicitor by the time you're 30 is a decent, you know, benchmark to aim for because there's this rush, you know, to, oh, I must qualify by the time I'm, I've graduated at 22, I can qualify by the time I'm 25 or whatever it is. You know, I think take your time is, is very good advice. I, I think it is. And I think particularly in kind of in the area of law, whereby you are ultimately going to end up dealing with real human beings and real human problems. One of the most common difficulties you see with lawyers is a lack of knowledge of the way the world operates because they have been funneled into law from a very early age, but very often before college, you know, in school because their parents are solicitors or barristers or judges and all they've ever known is law and they've gone straight into it after college and they don't have a kind of life experience and they may be brilliant academic um, intellectual lawyers, but a bit of life experience is is an absolutely fantastic thing to have when you reflect on the fact that you're going to be dealing with people with with real life problems, you know, and 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 having um, something that gives you empathy towards those problems can only be a help. That's fantastic. I completely agree with that. That's wonderful, and it's been so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. This has been Oberta Dicta, a Bloomsbury Professional Ireland podcast. To find out more about our titles and online services, visit bloomsburyprofessionalireland.com. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening.